Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The basketball world is reeling over the tragic death of Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter Gigi, and seven other souls who were on the tragic helicopter ride last Sunday in California. This week, our guest is a man whose career in journalism took him to L.A. at the precise time Kobe was bursting onto the basketball scene with the Lakers. Darlene, take it away. Buckets, Boards and Blocks is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Buckets, Boards and Blocks is hosted by a former Georgetown Hoyer who likes nothing better than a well-executed fade screen and thinks DC ballers are the smartest. A lover of threes in transition, Monica McNutt. Thanks, Darlene. J.A. Adande grew up in Los Angeles and followed the Lakers from a very young age. At just 26, he joined the Los Angeles Times in 1997, which was Kobe Bryant's rookie year with the Lakers. J.A. moved on to ESPN in 2007 and stayed until 2017 when he joined his alma mater, Northwestern University, to become the head of the sports journalism program at the prestigious Medill School of Journalism. Welcome, J.A. Um, Thank you for your time. And it seems like your L.A. journalism years and Kobe's years as an active player aligned perfectly. What a career to cover. Yeah, basically, I was there for 19 of his 20 years, and we, I didn't quite come in with him. He, he got there the year before I, I joined the LA Times, but we kind of went out together because 2016 was his last year there, and then that was my last year in LA full time. And I, I came to Northwestern that fall, so we went out. I, I just I just reread my column from his final game, that 60 point, 50 shot performance. Um, which is kind of summarized is the perfect way to cap off his career. And, you know, so much of his career was embodied in that. And that was the one time he was completely liberated to shoot just as much as he wanted with no consequences and, and no criticism. And you saw what it produced that, that, that memorable performance. I don't, I mean, there's so much to discuss J.A. I guess it's interesting because you are a, the utmost of a professional in terms of what you've done, but you also are someone who, is it safe to say, had a relationship with Kobe? Well, you use that word professional, and that's the word I would use to describe our relationship. It, it was really professional. Um, you know, part, partly because Kobe wasn't hanging out and socializing. You know, like if you travel with the team, you wouldn't see him out and about on the road. You know, maybe a couple times and a little bit later in his later years, but you know, for most of my time with the team, you know, especially when I was on the road and particularly during the playoffs, you just you, you wouldn't see him out about. You weren't likely to bump into him. Uh, so it it really was professional, but it was the, the utmost professional relationship in that, um, you know, whatever personal differences we might have had, we were able to put those aside. And I did my job. He did his job. And uh, it, it's just not only professional in that regard, in, in terms of doing the minimum, 
there was a, a professional courtesy and respect and something that, that helped me out later in my years when we could kind of draw on the decade and a half we'd spent together at that point. And he would do a little extra for me, you know. And so one of the things was I always tried to make sure in the playoffs that I would get him and Shaq on the side and just get one or two extra quotes that weren't in the press conference so that my readers could have something extra that they wouldn't get anywhere else. And, you know, those walkout interviews, I'm thinking about Kobe, just how much time we spent walking in that tunnel from from the locker room to where the cars were parked in the Staples Center, back and forth. And I feel like that's, when I think of them, that's my, my memories that, that stand out. Those, all those walks we had in that tunnel. And I think of the times standing outside the practice facility, you know, when I'd walk out with him to his car or his motorcycle on some days. Um, all that little extra that, that he gave me as a reward, you could say, for all the time that I'd, that I'd put in with him. And then even able to convert that into pregame interviews on camera that we do for NBA Coast to Coast, the, the show produced by your producer now, Bruce Bernstein. Bruce is such a great guy. Okay, so Jed, this is, I guess, sort of a two-part question for me because I appreciate where we are as a society, particularly in sports, um, discussing mental wellness and that part of it all. And so for someone who had a relationship, a professional relationship, like you said, on Sunday, when the news hits, you're still tasked sort of with doing a job. I mean, I've seen you. We appreciate you coming on our pod, of course. And then we've seen you on the ESPN platform as well. What was that like for you when you got the news and it was verified? It, it was weird because, like, I, you know, it's definitely a where were you when moment. And it was interesting just this week turned out it was the anniversary of the uh, explosion of the Space Shuttle Challenger. And it's, it, it was a similar tragedy, you know, and different generations have their moments. This will kind of be that moment for a number of people. Uh, but I, I remember discovering about the, the Challenger exploding shortly after takeoff in 1986. And, you know, this was a case of getting out of the shower. I worked out, taking a shower. It was a little after 2 p.m. Central Time. And I pick up my phone and there's all these texts and I just, I can't specifically remember who and in what order and how, but I just see this jumble of, oh my God, is it true? Kobe, oh no, I'm so sad. Helicopter died. And, you know, I was just kind of able to assemble it. And then I, I think I went online and, and tried to read up on what happened, but it, it's just this blur, you know, because it was just this barrage of text messages, none telling the complete story and I just kind of had to assemble it for myself and so I, I I just can't tell you specifically you know the moment it all crystallized but you know once you realized it was true Kobe Bryant had been killed in a helicopter crash uh, I, I was just numb I, I couldn't I couldn't reach out to anybody I was really sort of negligent in in trying to contact people it wasn't until a few hours later that I started contacting people with the Lakers and, you know, people who had worked to him, with him who were closer to him than I was just to express condolences and see how they were doing. But I, I was just kind of numb and immobile. And then um, my phone rang and it was ESPN calling to see if I could go on and do SportsCenter. And I, I felt obligated. I felt a little honored, um, you know, that people would think of me at that time. And I, I did feel an obligation because, you know, few people had spent as much time chronicling him 
as I had. And, um, you know, I, I, I just felt like I wanted to and needed to share those memories. And then I discovered over Sunday and Monday that the TV and radio and podcast appearances I did actually helped me. Uh, and they were the highlights of the day. Talking about Kobe, going through my memories of Kobe actually put a smile on my face. And it was easier to go on and talk about and share than it was to sit alone in my thoughts. So it was the worst time. The worst moment for me was, was Monday morning, just waking up the day after. And that's when it felt real. You know, it didn't feel real on Sunday. And I woke up Monday and it just hit me that he is gone. Um, I, I, and then I had more work to do. I had work to do for Northwestern and two TV shows to tape. And it, it's just been a whirlwind ever since. Um, hey, Jay, this I, is, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go, Bruce. Okay, sorry, Monica, I didn't mean to interrupt there. You you know, Jay, it's Bruce. You mentioned that, you know, one of your first calls was to reach out to the Lakers. And, you know, people, I think, that aren't, like, knowledgeable about the kind of inside baseball stuff probably don't realize that the Lakers are not this big corporate behemoth. They're as, about as much of a mom-and-pop operation as an NBA franchise can be. And we both have friends in that organization. Um, so I would imagine, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like NBA is kind of a family, Monica, you know, the basketball world is kind of a family. So everybody kind of feels like they lost a family member here, especially with that, that mom and pop Lakers operation. Yeah. And one of my early thoughts was, was Gary Vitti, the athletic trainer for the Lakers, who had been there going back to the Showtime days, right? And I just thought of how much time he spent with Kobe, how dedicated he was to getting Kobe's body ready to play for, I think it was about 1,346. I, I just saw the number in my story. So, you know, about 1,400 games, 1,500, including playoffs. Think about what it took to to keep him, to maintain him. And Gary Vitti was the one responsible for that on a daily basis, every game, taping those ankles. So he was one that, that really stood out to me. And I reached out to him on, on Facebook Messenger. Um, you know, I just, out of privacy, I won't, respect for his privacy, I won't, I won't share his response, but it, it, was, it was really difficult. Um, but people like that are the ones you think of, Kobe security people who not only spent so much time with him, but frequently rode that helicopter. And that was one of the distressing things for me was I thought at first the likelihood that one of them would be on the helicopter. And as it turned out, you know, the, the two that I'm closest with were not. Um, but there were some moments of uncertainty. You know, at first, at first I heard there were five people aboard the helicopter and all of them were named and none of them were the security people. And then I heard it was nine people. And I thought, okay, one of them had to be the security guys. And, um, you know, I was just so happy when the text came back from, from the one I thought would have been most likely to be on it. And he wasn't, obviously he wasn't on that helicopter. And that was just a moment of relief. And it didn't make it better, but it made it less worse, you know. Um, so, yeah, there, there's, there, there's people. Um, I just heard from somebody in the NBA community who, who told me the story of when you know, Kobe saw him and his daughter playing and, and Kobe came up to him and said, uh, how'd you get your daughter into basketball? You know, because Natalia, his oldest, wasn't really into basketball. She's a volleyball player. And he was hoping that Gigi would get into it. And he was asking him for advice on how to, you know, how to get his daughter interested in basketball. And, and 
you know, he just soaked up everything he could listening to this. Um, it, was, it was just heartbreaking watching Shaquille in particular and the guys on TNT last night um, and what they were going through. And that, that was one of the most difficult things for me just because those are guys I care about tremendously and to see them so hurt and broken really got to me. Um, you know, I, it, it's weird. As much time as we spent around Vanessa and the daughters, we just kind of kept her, her distance, not physically, but she'd be standing right there outside the locker room, and but she just never wanted to deal with the media. So uh, I can't say I have much relationship with her or the daughters, but the presence and just the, the pain that I feel knowing that she lost not only her husband but her daughter, um, that that is really difficult to imagine how she goes forward from here. And obviously she will, and she has to for her the three daughters now. Um, that's the, 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 the waves and the levels of this. And, you know, then you get to the other people who are bored and the other families. Uh, so many dimensions and so many so many levels and layers to this tragedy. Well, going back to the very beginning of his time as a member of the Lakers family, I mean, on draft day of 96, Jerry West traded a future Hall of Famer, Vlade Divac, to Charlotte for the draft rights to this 17-year-old Kobe. Um, and Jerry West and Kobe had a really sort of remarkable relationship going back to the very beginning. Can you describe that relationship? One, it was Jerry's basketball acumen that saw in this 17-year-old a future Hall of Famer and a champion, and he just knew it. And everything he did to make sure that Kobe Bryant was going to be a Laker, and I think Kobe always valued and treasured the fact that this legendary figure in the NBA, the logo, one of the 50 greatest players of all time, and then one of the greatest NBA executives of all time, believed in Kobe at at a time when few, if any, other people did. And that meant so much to Kobe. And you heard Jerry talk about it, and he's, he's made, I'm amazed he's been able to pull himself together to make so many media appearances this week. But he, you've heard him talk about the bond that they had. And I don't know that we'll ever truly understand and grasp the, the depth of the connection that they had. But one thing I keep thinking about, he's the first of the set, must have been the first, championship parade when the Lakers won in 2000, maybe it's 2001, but I think in 2000, Kobe wore a throwback Jerry West jersey for the parade. And I always thought that was so cool that he honored Jerry West uh, in the moment of, of that team's glory, the modern Lakers glory, but he, he wore that throwback jersey and paid tribute to Jerry West. J.A., one of the thoughts that has been sort of bantered around has to do with Jerry West being the logo. Um, from what I understand, he's not super pressed about that title. And there are people suggesting that Kobe should become the new logo. Is that something that you think, one, Jerry West would bless? And then if he did, um, would Adam Silver and the powers that be agree to it? I know Jerry West would definitely sign off on it. He's not crazy about being the logo. He never was. In fact, somebody... <laughs> <laughs> I was standing with him one time when he was working with the Warriors in the hallway and, and somebody came up and introduced his daughter to Jerry West and he said, this is the NBA logo. And Jerry said, 
I don't want to be any point at me. He's like, you could be the logo. <laughs> I don't think I'd make a very good logo, Jerry. But uh, yeah, he would willingly uh, abandon his logo ship. But I, I, one thing I've, I've tried to caution people, I don't, I don't think we need to make permanent decisions and such drastic decisions in the immediate wake. You know, people said, should they retire number 24 throughout basketball? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what permanent things need to be done at this moment. Let's take some time. Let's think about it. There, there are ways to honor him, maybe name the court at Staples Center, Kobe Bryant Court, at least when the Lakers are playing. Um, you know, I'm sure there will be a statue outside. Um, his jerseys are already hang there, obviously. The, the Dallas Mavericks have announced that they're going to retire number 24. Um, let, let's, let's just see. I've, I've loved the organic tributes and the, the instant tributes of the, the shot clock violations, the 24-second shot clock or the eight-second backcourt violations and just taking a moment in the game to honor him. It, it's rare that we see tributes in the actual game, and I, I think that's powerful. That's something I don't think we've ever seen before. Um, you know, maybe going back to, to Bo Kimball's left-hand free throws uh, when Hank Gathers died, Loyola Marymount, back in the early 90s. Um, for your younger listeners, you, they, they can listen to that story. But it's so rare we've seen in-game tributes like that. And that that was unique and special. Just guys wearing 24 or 8 um, in their jerseys. I, you know, I, I wouldn't mind if people changed their jersey numbers to that. That's one reason I wouldn't want to see it retire. What, what if people want to honor Kobe by, by wearing his jersey number and show the inspiration that he was to them by wearing number eight or number 24? So I think they should continue to have that option. So I'm not I'm, – I'm just not in any type of rush to permanently alter the landscape of the league right now. They, they will think of something. Uh, he will be remembered. He will be commemorated. Uh, I, I trust in Adam Silver and the league leadership to, to think of something. And – everyone needs to take some time right now, you know, and, and not be caught up in the moment. There, there's so many logistical things. They need to reschedule that Laker Clipper game, for example, that, that was canceled on Tuesday night. So there, there are so many logistical things. We, we, we still don't know what the, the memorial service or the funeral plans are. Um, there, there's so much to do right now that I just feel like, you know, we can get to finding a way to honor Kobe Bryant in a permanent fashion later on. That's always a good, always a good strategy to not make permanent decisions in the moments of emotion. I'd like to selfishly take you back to a story that you kind of briefly teased earlier in this discussion about when you and I worked together at ESPN on NBA Coast to Coast and all the years that you were willing to go to Staples Center and do some pregame interviews. The, the picture I'm going to use on social media to promote this show is a picture of you and Kobe Bryant where you did he, one of those pregame interviews and you handed him an old VHS tape. Could you please tell us that story? And thanks for all those live shots. So that was one of the years. <laughs> You're welcome, Bruce. Well, thank you for having me do it out of Staples Center instead of coming to Bristol, Connecticut. That was a genius producer move on your part. You said willing to go to Staples Center. Trust me, I was a lot more willing to go to Staples Center than I was to get on a plane and fly, fly out to the East Coast. Um, so that was a great idea, but, um, you know, one of the, when you pitched the idea to me, one of the things was, you know, you could do interviews with players on their way into the game and we could use those and could you get Kobe Bryant? And, you know, I had to summon all the, all the connections, all the bonds that we had formed, the professional bonds that we had forged over the years to, to get into, because he didn't like to do those interviews. 
Um, he would do them for Jack Haley, who's now passed away as well, who was working for Fox Sports West. Jack Haley could get him going in sometimes, and I kind of used Kobe and say, hey, you did it for Jack Haley, could do it for me. And so Kobe would agree, you know, once a year, we do like five of these shows. So for one per year, he would agree that, all right, I'll, you know, on the way in, I'll stop in like two minutes, you know, four questions max, that's it. Um, but I, I really appreciated that. And, and he knew how much it meant. And, you know, he knew that, it would curry favor with the producers, right? I would score bonus points with, with the folks back home. And, and he also knew what it would mean to the program to be able to have an, uh, a Kobe Bryant interview. And, you know, you guys being the producers, the good producer that you are, would, you know, something that you could tease throughout the whole show and maintain viewership and say, coming up, you know, we're going to have an interview with Kobe Bryant. So it was a little thing, you know, a little two-minute interview. But as a television producer, you know how much that meant. Um, and I'm sure you could have a sense of how much went into getting those two minutes and the, the volume of text messages that went through. You know, I, I would go directly to Kobe to get him to sign off on it. And then he'd say, okay, talk to Allison Bogley with the Lakers PR, for example. And it, it was kind of chilling. I remember for one of them getting the updates, like, you know, he's, he's on the helicopter, he's on his way. And, and just thinking about that this week of, you know, that helicopter flight and, and, uh, I just had those memories of sitting there literally waiting for the helicopter to land and for him to get to Staples Center so that we could, we could do our interviews. Um, so the one with the videotape, as he was making his way past these legendary figures in the game and uh, passing Oscar Robertson or whoever it might be, he would always manage to describe people and ask him what it meant. He'd say, well, Oscar Robertson was this, he was so great at that. And he pretty detailed descriptions about these players who played long before he was even born. And so finally one time I asked him, Kobe, how did, how did you learn about these guys? And he said his grandfather used to send him tapes when he lived in Italy. He would send him all these tapes, and one of them was called Golden Greats of Basketball. And it, you know, had, so it was like you know, Bob Cousy and Bill Russell and Oscar Robertson, Will Chamberlain. I think it went up to Dr. J. Um, and so Kobe used to watch it, and that's how he learned. And, you know, that's how he, he – picked up some attributes that he incorporated in his game from watching those. So I said, you know what, sort of as a little thank you. And then also I think it'd be a cool TV moment if I could give him a copy of that tape. So I went on eBay and I found it and, um, you know, I handed it to him. And if you, I'm sure the picture shows, he just was in disbelief and he really smiled and really opened up. I actually showed that interview to my students in class this week, Bruce. And I was like, anything, any little tool you can do, to get them to relax, to get them to open up, to get them to feel nostalgic. And in the interview, you could just kind of see all the memories that it triggered, memories of his grandfather, memories of his days as a youth watching his videotapes. Um, and so it was, it was a cool moment, and I was glad we could do that. And it, it might have been a gimmick, <laughs> you might say, but I think it was something that um, it, I'm, I'm glad we could share that. I'm glad it was captured on camera. And... Um, yeah, that was that was my attempt to be a TV producer. Bruce. I was thinking like a producer instead of just a, an interviewer. Oh my God, That's no! Don't lower the don't lower the bar for yourself like that. <laughs> Sorry, that is no. That's that's great. Jay. I love that story. Um, all right, so we want to be mindful of your time. So we got a couple more questions, and we'll get you out of here. You've had a unique position to kind of watch the arc of not only his basketball career, but in the last few years, um, just kind of Kobe, the creator. What is the thing 
is there a single thing that stands out the most in terms of how Kobe Bryant became the man that so many lives were touched by? Well, the one thing that links his career and what he got into in the post game, post post career career after his playing days were done, and I kind of stumbled on it as I was on around the horn talking the other day. To me, the easiest way to describe Kobe Bryant is he was a great producer of content, and I think he realized that as well. But if you look at his basketball career, he was so polarizing, and he inspired so much fervor from his fans and so much hatred from his enemies. But either way, whatever side you fell on, you had to admit it was compelling content. And he could give you he could give you plenty of material, whether you're a supporter or a detractor. There was so much material that he provided you to work with. And it just made a natural fit that he got into the content creation business afterward because he realized that's what it's about. That's what the NBA is about. And, and he and, and Shaq would talk about this too. Like so much of their feud was for show. And it, it was real. There was There was a real disconnect and dissonance at the heart of it. But they kind of played it up as well you know, particularly after Shaq was gone. Um, you know, that first game back was one of the highest rated <laughs> Christmas games when Shaq came back with Miami to play the Lakers and Kobe for the first time. So they understood it, and, and they, they fed into the hype. They, they understood content. You know, or Shaq, Shaq would call it marketing. Kobe considered it content. So it made for a natural transition, and, and I think it enabled him to have one of the smoother transitions for especially an all-time great player to just adapt so easily and seamlessly into the next phase of, of his life because the core of it was the same. It was about creating content. It was about captivating people's interest. And Kobe always realized that. Wow, that is, that's really well said. Um, I think for me, um, and it's, it's odd, Jay, because no, I do not have a personal relationship with Kobe or his family or anyone on that flight for that matter. But it was weird because in a way I felt very robbed as a former women's basketball player, as someone who covers the game, because I so admired Kobe, the mentor who was taking NBA, WNBA players, Olympians, both men and women under his wing. And quite honestly, was a hundred percent confident that Gianna Bryant was going to be one of the next big things in women's basketball as it continues to take steps forward. Um, what would you say about his commitment to uh, expanding the women's basketball game? It was, I know, valued by members of the WNBA community to see someone as prominent as him. And, you know, we've seen LeBron James, Chris Paul at WNBA courtside. But Kobe's commitment and, and his hopes and dreams that one day DG would play in the WNBA. and um, showing the value of the WNBA and how great these athletes were and, you know, what a great sport and what a great league the WNBA is. And, you know, you, you hate to say that it, it would require the validity of a man blessing it and a, you know, an NBA player blessing it, but um, it helps. It, 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 it helps, um, it helps give that WNBA the, the boost. And, and you heard so many, Female players were so appreciative of of his love of their sport and his support of them. And I know how much it meant to them. 
And, um, you know, the, we've seen that clip of him on Jimmy Kimmel talking about how people said, you need to have a son to carry on the legacy. And he said, no, you know, Gigi's got it. And I was watching a clip, a clip of him playing against her and trying to guard her unsuccessfully. She was like shoving him off and hitting fadeaway jumpers over him. And I was thinking it's a shame that, you know, it's just such an additional tragedy that we don't even get to see him carried on through her because I think we would have seen so much of him in her and so many moves that were reminiscent of her dad if she had had the opportunity to continue to live and play basketball at a high level and, and to be visible doing that. So, again, so many layers to this, and it's just that tragedy on top of tragedy that uh, not only did she lose her life and she won't get to grow up and fulfill her dreams, but that we're deprived of an opportunity to see the, the next generation and the continuance of Kobe, the basketball player. Um, who knows, maybe his younger daughters will take up the game and we'll just, we'll see genetically, they won't have him around to teach them, but, um, you know, maybe they'll just kind of embody some of Kobe's moves and, and his style. Uh, it, it's interesting, Daryl Strawberry, uh, his son played basketball, you know, and I think he was with the Phoenix Suns for a while, but um, he, he had this thing he would do where he, the way he would stand and, and just put his hand on his hip, and his stance and his posture, it, and it just reminded me of Daryl Strawberry so much. And it could be that we'll see the, the two youngest daughters grow up and play basketball, and just, just little things, the way they stand or the way they move, might remind us of Kobe Bryant, even though you know, they, they, wouldn't, they won't really have any memories of him being alive to show them and teach them things. Maybe they grow up and they just do some things that remind us of Kobe, and, and he lives on in that way. We can certainly all hope. Well, J.A., thank you so much for your time this morning, um, reflecting and sharing some of the stories and the perspective that you had after years of covering Kobe. Welcome. Thank you, Monica. Thank you, Bruce. Full stop. Wow. Oh, man. That was really good stuff that J.A. shared with us, Bruce. I, um, you know, it's... I agree with what he said in that it's not for me a personal feeling of loss, but I cannot stop thinking about those families directly impacted. And then selfishly, like I said to him, one of my thoughts genuinely was, wow, like we won't get to see all that Gigi was potentially going to be in the women's game. Um, I literally, one of my good friends from Georgetown who plays in WNBA, Sugar Rogers, was just at the Mamba facility Two weeks ago, maybe, Kobe hosted a camp for WNBA players. And, I mean, him taking on the game now as a mentor and as a coach compared to the guy who we read about in folks like J.A.'s work or even when I read Phil Jackson's book, who was painted as this ultimate competitor at all costs. And now he was a coach for so many, to, to use the term coach, like, it was such a beautiful transition and it really feels like it was just beginning to bloom and now it's over. The tragedy is beyond horrible. I mean, we, uh, you know, we're here to talk about Kobe and Gigi. Uh, there was seven other people on the helicopter found, and, and of course, you know, whenever something like this happens, like literally hundreds of people, if not thousands of people are personally affected. I mean, millions and maybe even billions of people could be affected by by Kobe's loss. But it's so true what you're saying. I mean, one of the things 
I've become much more of a fan of women's basketball as a result of working with you on this podcast. I always liked it, but I never really sunk my teeth into it as much as I have in the past, you know, six to eight months since we've been working together. And one of the things that I found is that the game has grown so much and it's become much more popular. And the fact that people like Kobe were not only attending WNBA games and talking about the WNBA, but really mentoring you know, the the girls turning into women who become the players. Um, everybody needs a mentor. Everybody needs kind of a North Star in some ways that we can follow and say, you know, you're, you're leading lots of people into a good place. And the way he was taking the lead in helping promote girls and women's basketball, that's got to be just such a crushing loss for those of you and those of us who really want to see the women's game do well. Yeah. And and I, it's just, there's so many layers. I do agree with J.A. that talking about it has been more soothing than I anticipated. I actually, quite honestly, dreaded doing the 150 on Tuesday night in New York because I just felt as if, I couldn't quite put it into words and how selfish of me when I did not have an intimate relationship um, with these people. Um, So it's been a lot to grapple with, but I would hope um, that it reminds us all to operate with a little bit of urgency. And we can even call it the Mamba mentality in honor of Kobe, because the harsh reality is that all of us will be faced with our own mortality and we don't know the day nor the hour. Um, and so you would hope that you make made every day count, right? Like Stuart Scott said, make the dash count. Um, and Kobe is definitely someone who made the dash count. And I think, not I think, I know for sure that his legacy will continue to live on in basketball players, WNBA, women's college, men's college, NBA, and so on for sure. And I commend someone like LeBron who has taken that charge, you know, to really move this thing to the next step forward. And while Zuri has her great YouTube page, that's LeBron's daughter, Who knows? She might become an athlete as well. And then LeBron would have the same passion and urgency about seeing the WNBA and women's college basketball elevated. I know that when LeBron talks about anything that would be kind of in the overall category of like social justice, social issues, whatever, he always puts his money where his mouth is. He doesn't just talk about things. He does things, right? And I think that if you read that Instagram post that he wrote after Kobe died, and I'm sure you did, everybody did, it's very, very clear that he is, he means business when it comes to continuing Kobe's legacy. He's going to be on a mission to win a championship. He's going to be a mis- on a mission to continue some of the things that really mattered to Kobe because those guys were incredibly close. I mean, LeBron and Michael Jordan never really had a relationship. Um, but LeBron and Kobe had an incredibly wonderful relationship. And, you know, speaking of relationships, J.A. talked about seeing Shaquille O'Neal on TV and, and his reactions. I mean, Shaq looks to be shaken to his very core by this thing. And he's like the most powerful force we've seen in basketball in, you know, 30 or more years. And to see a man so physical, so larger in life, just absolutely shaken to the core, really, it's a message that that should get to all of us to basically say, don't wait till somebody's dead to say something nice about him. 
if you respect somebody or if you love somebody or you just admire somebody, tell them while they're alive, okay? Because that's when it's going to matter. And that's one of the lessons that I'm taking away from this whole thing. Completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, Shaq, you can really see the agony. I think the three interviews for me, um, Shaq, Trace McGrady, and Jerry West, and you could just see how tormented they were. Um, I also think Elle Duncan at ESPN did a great job in sharing her story when she interacted with Kobe while she was pregnant with her daughter and how much pride he took in being a girl dad. And um, I mean, I can relate to that, right? Like we didn't have a helicopter, obviously, but I was in tow with my dad as a high school referee. Um, He was the first person that really taught me about the game. And we went to the gym early on Saturday mornings. And that was such a key factor in our relationship. And so I get that. I, I think, and I don't know when, and everybody grieves differently, Bruce, but I hope that we're able to turn the page to your point and learn from this and celebrate and be grateful for all that Kobe gave us. Um, Of course, I literally, my prayers are just for those families immediately impacted because their lives are forever changed in ways that we cannot understand. Well, we can fathom, I guess, but it would, our shoes do not compare to what they're walking in at all. Well, there's a void in the basketball universe right now. And it's something that I I, I really kind of like how J, how J.A. talked about how making permanent decisions in a moment of extreme emotion is probably not the best way to go about things. And I think he's right. So, but I do think that it's really, really cool that, you know, players like Spencer Dinwiddie and other guys, I heard Kemba Walker was considering giving up number eight in, in honor of him. If those guys want to do that, I think that's fine. That's not a permanent decision by the league or the franchise. That's an individual choice. And look, maybe one year down the road, uh, somebody will wear number eight for those teams again. But in the moment, that to me is is a really um, wonderful way to honor Kobe. But you know, and and Spencer, I believe, is from LA, so I think he grew up watching uh, Kobe and admiring and respecting it. So uh, any player that wants to do that, it's great. And the league is really good about finding ways to honor people in a permanent way. And I'm sure they'll all talk about it and they'll make a really good decision. I don't have, I think I've sort of emptied my emotional bag, Monica. I don't know how much else I have to say here other than prayers to the Bryant family, uh, prayers to the families of the other ones who perished. um, And we'll remember Kobe as long as we live. 100% Bruce, well said. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thank you so very much to our guest, J.A. Adande, who spent 19 years with Kobe in Los Angeles. We truly appreciate hearing his personal reflections on the man whose loss leaves an enormous void in the basketball universe. Thanks also to my producer and loyal sidekick, Bruce Bernstein, and our great editor, Ben Walton. Please check out our other Pure Hoops media shows. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin drops each Wednesday. Their guest this week is Coach Dave Miller, a former Lakers broadcaster who became close friends with Kobe and his family. His stories are incredible. The Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman drops each Friday. 
BJ played against Kobe for four seasons, and he will share more reflections on their relationship. Finally, Mike Wise swings by each Monday with the Mike Wise Show. His most recent show was a late night conversation recorded last Sunday where he shared his best Kobe stories. Please download, rate, and review all of our shows. It really makes a difference. We'll see you all next week. Until then, enjoy your hoops and please pray for the Bryant family and all of those affected by the crash. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt has been a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 